little uh, interactive part of the sermon before we get started. Who here likes to try to figure everything out from like beginning to end? Like you need to have like a system for everything and uh, where's our engineers? Yeah, our linear thinkers. There you are. And um, who, who likes to read the end of the book before you get there? A uh, couple people, yeah. That way I kind of know where I'm going. Um, the Bible has revealed to us all of history from beginning to end. Praise God, we're not in the dark. And we tend to focus most on the middle, because that's where we're living, and we're self-focused people. We all are. Uh, but the middle of the story is great, because that's the gospel. And we rightly focus most of our attention on the gospel and getting the gospel correct, that we're saved by faith. Faith alone, our works don't contribute at all to our salvation. It's a free gift that Jesus earned for us on the cross. He lived the perfect life we could not live. He died the death we deserved. His righteousness gets transferred to our account by God through faith in him. It's a wonderful part of the story. It's the part I like to read over and over again. But the beginning of the story is very important, and the end of the story is very important as well. We wouldn't know how the story started if God didn't reveal it to us because most of us weren't there. A couple, couple old-timers here, maybe. right? No, nobody was there except God. In fact, the Bible says in the beginning, somebody was already there. God created the heavens and earth. And I don't know if you've noticed, but good Bible-believing Christians of all stripes argue over how exactly the beginning started. And there's, there's good, healthy debate over the age of the earth. But good Bible-believing Christians all affirm that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, this last week, probably the most famous scientist in the world, Stephen Hawking, died. And he believed that he had figured out by his sheer brute force intelligence how it all got started. And he came to the conclusion that it wasn't God who started it all. And that is where we end up if we don't listen to God's revelation. And if you don't listen to God's revelation, you won't know how the story ends as well. And knowing how the story begins and how it ends will really help shape how you live life in the in-between time. And so we'll be looking today uh, at how the story ends. And I just want to let you know up front, there's a lot of disagreement among evangelicals about how exactly the story ends. But we're all in agreement in one area, and it's the most important area. And no matter what you glean from the sermon this morning, I want to make sure you leave with this in mind. Jesus reigns over all, and he is going to return. And he's going to make everything right. Any injustice we think has gone unnoticed, has not gone unnoticed, he will make everything right. He will restore creation back to its original intention. As the Bible says, he'll wipe away every tear. And he will receive 
All the glory, all the honor, all the praise forever and ever. Amen. And I'm going to steal a little quote I saw from, from Albert Moeller uh, when he was visiting a church teaching in a Sunday school class, much like our Sunday school classes in the morning, and somebody asked a question about the end times. You know, is, is this going to happen, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this? And he said, yes, it's all going to happen. And he refused to be nailed down as to the sequence of events. And he said this, and I thought it was very instructive, and I would share with you this morning. He said, know this much, that when it all goes down, we're all going to say, yep, that's, that's pretty much what it said. And there isn't going to be some guy with his eschatology chart timeline going, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. This part of the tribulation was supposed to happen first, Jesus, so go, go back and wait. But sometimes we live that way as Christians. It's part of our fallenness. It's okay to want to know. It's good to want to know. It's good to study. It's good to put ideas out on the table and discuss them. But when somebody says they know for sure in areas of the Bible where God has purposely made some things sure and some things a little less sure, let's be careful not to get dogmatic in areas of Scripture that are unsure and let's be dogmatic about the areas where we are sure. The Trinity, the dual nature of Christ, that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. These are the things that we need to be dogmatic about. We need to be dogmatic about loving God and loving one another. We need to be dogmatic about humility, which is a strange thing to say. Because it's hard to be humble when you're being dogmatic. So if you want to be dogmatic about something, be dogmatic first and foremost about humility. I have got to humble myself before God. I don't know everything. The Bible says that it contains everything we need for faith and godliness. Amen? That's everything we need for faith and godliness. It also says it's the mind of Christ. We know God's private thoughts. Wow, that's amazing. That God would condescend to our level and let us in on his private thought life. We have the mind of Christ. We know the beginning from the end. We see how everything was, re- was created and how it all fell apart and how God is putting it all back together. And yet we also have plenty of passages that keep us humble like Deuteronomy 29, 29. That the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. There are secret things that belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey God. So we focus on the things that have been clearly revealed to us And as we like to say, major on the majors, minor on the minors, and in all things charity, meaning humility. We have other whole books of the Bible like Job that teach us humility. When Job thought he had everything figured out and wanted to question God, God questions him. And by the time God's done questioning, Job says, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. 
I'll shut my mouth now. And repent in dust and ashes. And then God restores him. We have Paul quoting from the Old Testament in Romans asking, who is God's counselor? You get to the place where you think you can teach God, you've crossed the line. And you crossed it a long time ago. So this morning as we look at the kingdom, and the kingdom especially at the end times, we need to proceed with humility, stand firm on the things we know for certain, and hold lightly the things that we think the scriptures are pointing to. Knowing that good and godly men and women disagree in some areas over what the kingdom's going to look like at the end times. When you first become a Christian and you hear those, the, the wonderful gospel and you know you're a sinner and you know you need a savior and you focus on the gospel and you have to be taught over and over again that it's by grace, it's a free gift. Stop trying to earn it. Oh, so I don't have to do anything good. No, you do the good afterwards to say thank you. And because you're a new creature in Christ and you want to do good now. And you're so excited to be a Christian and you're walking in Christ. And then you start running into some more difficult doctrines like sanctification. Well, how come I keep doing the things I don't want to do and the things I do want to do I don't seem to be able to do? Well, I'm glad you asked that because Paul talks about that in Romans 7. And now you start delving into... The mysteries of sanctification. Well, what part is God doing and what part am I doing? Yes. Read, read Philippians. He who started a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, but you need to keep working at it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wait, who, who's doing the work? In your sanctification, you're doing the work with God. What percentage is him and what percentage is me? No, you, you can't figure it out down to that detail. We live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Then you start moving into things like the end times. And, and you're like, he's coming back? Yes, he is. When? Any day. Be ready. Any day. And he's been saying that for 2,000 years now. Any day. Be ready. And you're like, okay, I understand end times. And then you go to some Sunday school class and you start to hear things like amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. You can't even say it after a while. Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Are you dispensational or are you covenantal? Does it matter? Yes, we're not giving you a chair till you tell us. We may have to show you the door. And it starts to erode some of your faith in the church. These people are really angry at each other over these things. I said, well, that's not supposed to happen. That's part of the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Even in our residual fallenness, we'll fight about beautiful truths in the Bible. So one strategy would be to not talk about anything that's divisive. In the Bible, but then you would pretty much leave out most of the Bible. A, a better strategy is to learn how to talk about things with humility. They're important things. If they weren't, God would not have given them to us. So, 
Last week we looked at what is the kingdom, and today we'll look at where is the kingdom, and next week we'll finish up with when is the kingdom. Luke 17, verse 20 to 24. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look, Look there, look here, and do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Notice the Pharisees asked, when is the kingdom? And Jesus didn't answer that question. He started with what and where. Because if you don't understand what and where, then there's no point in asking when. And I'll just give you a little preview of next week. Jesus said, you don't get to know when the kingdom is. But come back next week. There's more to say than that. But imagine if he just told them, you don't get to know when. He's got teaching that he wants to do. And that question created the opportunity to answer some really important questions that they should have had. What is the kingdom? What is it going to look like? How do we get into the kingdom? How do we live once we're in the kingdom? These are better questions to ask than when is it? So last week we got some answers from a an old Baptist theologian named George Eldon Ladd. And he studied the Bible as it pertains to the kingdom and looked at every way the Bible uses the word kingdom. And, and he said, the, basically, the Bible uses the word kingdom in three different ways. And so whenever you get to a passage, you have to understand which of the three ways that passage is talking about the kingdom. Number one is that sometimes the kingdom refers to God's universal sovereign reign. So just in general terms, and we sang about the kingdom this morning, you reign over all. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're talking about his reign coming down. Sometimes, though, the kingdom refers to the spiritual realm of God's reign. This is the part of the kingdom we can enter now by faith in Jesus Christ. Before we get any farther, are you in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ? You can know this part now. Whatever we say about the future is for the future. But today, right now, you can know if you're in the kingdom. There's only one way into the kingdom. Jesus said that the way in is very narrow. That there's another way that people think you can get in the kingdom. And that's a very broad path. And lots of people are on that path. And he said it leads to destruction. There's a narrow gate. And Jesus said he's the gate. He's the door. He's the way, the truth, 
and the life. He's the resurrection. No point in studying the kingdom until you're in the kingdom. People study the kingdom and forget to enter the kingdom. Sad. Or they want to know about the kingdom so they can decide, well, I don't know if I'd rather be there or somewhere else. If God is there, that is where you want to be. If, if Jesus is there, that is where you want to be. And Jesus said that he is preparing a place for those who have placed their faith in him. That's the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. But think about creation, the creation story. God created the heavens and earth. God created a man. We are made male and female in his image as both physical bodies and spirit. We're bipartite beings, two parts. We are physical and spiritual. Jesus, God the the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came and became a man, and he was fully man and fully God. He has a body. He was the first to be resurrected, the first to get his resurrection body. The Bible says the first fruits. He will always have a body. He will be spirit and body. He will be physical and spiritual. We will all be physical and spiritual. So there is a physical aspect to the kingdom. And this is where the debate happens. What part of the physical kingdom is now? What part is future? And will there be this actual 1,000 year kingdom that the Bible calls the millennium? A literal physical kingdom here on earth where Jesus will come back and reign in a literal kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And then the spiritual and physical finally all get redeemed after the thousand year reign. We all understand the eternity part in some way. Man, I put my faith in Jesus. When he calls me home, he'll take care of the rest, you know. I'm not exactly sure what it'll look like, but it's going to be way better than this. And I'm going to be with Jesus. And there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and best of all, no more sin. I can finally worship my God the way he deserves to be worshipped without myself getting in the way all the time. That'll be wonderful. I won't have to look with suspicion at my fellow man in heaven. There won't be any more, what's their real agenda? Everyone will have the same agenda, glorifying God and not trying to glorify self. So we look forward to that day. But there's some disagreement over what happens just before that time. Is there a literal physical kingdom? So getting back to Luke, what part of the kingdom is is Jesus talking about? Like where is the kingdom In Luke 17. He says the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say look here it is or there it is. For behold the kingdom of God is in your midst. And last week if you were here we talked about the preposition. 
that we translate in your midst. And some of your Bibles translate it, it's inside of you. The kingdom of God is inside of you. This preposition's only used twice in the Bible. Jesus uses it here, and he uses it when he says to the Pharisees that you need to clean the inside of the cup. And so one might be tempted to say, well, if it means inside there, it should mean inside here. But we know that we have phrases that mean different things depending on the context. So there's two possibilities. Possibility number one is that Jesus may be saying that um, the first part of the kingdom is inside of you. Now we have to be careful here because some theologians will then say, if that's what this verse is saying, then Jesus is teaching that there isn't a physical part of the kingdom outside of you. That there's only a spiritual kingdom. But we don't take one passage of the Bible when the Bible has so much to say about the kingdom and base all of our theology off of one passage, especially when it's a passage that I believe Jesus intended to be unclear in certain ways. Jesus always kind of speaking in riddles. That got their attention. Wait a minute. They're expecting a literal physical kingdom. Why are they expecting this kind of kingdom? Because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come and set up a literal physical kingdom. Israel, headquartered in Jerusalem, with a king reigning on David's throne. This is what they were expecting. Jesus may also be saying, though, that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Meaning, look, it's all around you. The king's here. You're missing it. The king is here. If the king is here, then, you're, then the kingdom is in your midst. But you don't see me as the king. That's the problem. I think both of these interpretations have validity. And I think they can even peacefully coexist. Jesus may have been intending it to mean both of these things, which is why he chose a preposition that uh, can can do double duty. So, which way do you lean? And I want you to understand this morning that we know, especially in this church because we've been well taught, that we should come to the Bible and use a certain set of principles to interpret the Scripture so we arrive at the meaning of the Scripture God intended and then then we'll say this is what the Bible means. And yet... We're all guilty of, before we come to the Bible, seeing the world in a certain way which colors our interpretation when we come to the Scripture, especially difficult texts like this one. So I contend that your view of the kingdom often determines your interpretation. Like, you have a view of the kingdom. Some people lean more towards there is this actual literal physical kingdom coming that I'm waiting for. So 
who cares about this kingdom right now? And other people see this kingdom as really important right now, and we should do everything we can do to make it as godlike as humanly possible. And the pendulum could swing really far one direction or the other. And if you go too far to this is the kingdom now, then you get all entrenched in things like the social gospel. We just got to like make Christianish schools and government buildings and bureaucracies and try to Christianize the kingdom now. That's, that's one side of the pendulum. And then you, you forget to evangelize people. Well, they're moral, and they're all for family values. And that's good for the kingdom. Or you could swing too far to the other side of, of, of the pendulum and say, man, all of this is getting destroyed, and a new kingdom is getting set up, so forget all this. Forget about the culture. Forget about society. It's all, it's all going away. God's creating new heavens and new earth, so we don't even really have to take care of this one, right? And if you care about this earth, you must be some kind of environmental wacko. And next thing you know, you got two people, groups, in the church who agree on the gospel, but can't worship together because of their view of the kingdom. And that's sad. So what I want to attempt to do today is help you understand the different views, explain why your view matters, look at some biblical evidence, not all of it, because we've got the whole Bible in, in only 19 minutes and 23 seconds left. And then how should we live in light of the evidence? In fact, I'm not going to hit all my slides today. They'll be online in a couple weeks, and you, could, you can go through them more closely. So let's get started here. What are the different views? Jesus had to correct false understandings about the kingdom. The, the original audience here, again, was expecting a literal kingdom, a literal physical kingdom. Messiah would come and set up a literal physical geopolitical kingdom and usher in a time of worldwide peace. Okay, so I'll just lay my hand out now. I believe there really is still a literal physical kingdom coming. Because the Bible prophesies about it so much in the Old Testament and describes it so much that I would have to allegorize so much of the Old Testament to explain away this literal physical kingdom. I also believe there's a literal physical kingdom coming because there was a literal physical kingdom when he made Adam and Eve, and it all fell apart because of their sin. And I believe there's got to be a time when it's all made right again here on earth where everyone could see and glorify God. Now that's the way it was supposed to be. God is king, not man is king. The Jews only partially understood the Old Testament prophecies. What they didn't understand that Messiah would actually be God in human flesh who would first set up his kingdom in the hearts of believers through his sacrificial death and resurrection. So when he says, look, the kingdom's not there or it's not there, it's in your midst, 
I think that was alluding to the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. So going back to the passage in question. Notice Jesus says that the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Why does he use that title? And you will not see it. He's talking to those people there and telling them, I believe that the days of the Son of Man are coming, but you won't still be here on earth to, to see it. This is going to happen in the future. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, when, when Jesus comes back, you'll know. There won't be any guessing. There won't be any, hey, he's, uh, he's at the Walmart down in Bakersfield. And you're like, well, which one? Uh, oh, everyone's going to know. It's going to be so obvious, like lightning, everyone's going to know. Jesus uses this Son of Man title. He's borrowing language from the book of Daniel, which prophesies about the end times. Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days being God the Father, the, the Son of Man being God the Son. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. It sounds a lot like the millennial kingdom to me. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. That sounds like the after the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and new earth with the spiritual kingdom that goes on forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The part we're looking at at Luke also occurs in Matthew's gospel, but in more detail. So if you want to study Matthew 24 this week, we call that the Olivet Discourse because it was a teaching given on the Mount of Olives, which is just on the other side of Jerusalem. It, it overlooks the temple, the Mount of Olives. It is the mountain that is prophesied will split when Jesus returns. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There's that Son of Man language again. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's an important word, in end times theology, the tribulation. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Note it says after the tribulation, which Daniel also prophesies will be a seven-year period. Seven-year period. That will happen and then Christ will return. So Luke's talking about 
the second coming of Christ, or I should say better, Christ is talking about his second coming. We have a special word for that. It's called the parousia. I don't hear people use that a lot, but if you read books on the second coming, they'll use that word. So if you're new to the Christian faith, then you're like, man, this is all more complicated than, than I thought. Well, yeah, we're talking about everything. The Bible covers it all. And yet, don't ever lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Anytime you start getting lost in all of the deeper theology, run back to the cross. Jesus loves you. You're saved by faith. His mercies are new each morning. And he... He's going to call you home and he's preparing a place for you. And he's going to come back and, and get his bride, the church. Notice this part of Matthew has that little portion of Daniel that we read quoted in it. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because they've rebelled against the king. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. All right. So all theologians are convinced that Jesus is talking about his second coming in this portion of Luke. All Christians agree there is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom and a physical aspect. It's not that the spiritual is good and the physical is evil and it's going to go away. That dualism uh, was taught by the Gnostics, uh, has some other names, Manichaeism. It's heresy. God created, and on the last day, what did he say about his creation? It is very good. heresy in the early church that Jesus didn't take on an actual body because physical matter was evil. God would never take on a physical body. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. He brings together the spiritual and the physical. He's going to redeem all of creation. All Christians agree that Christ will return But there are three major views about what kind of kingdom there will be when he returns. Three views there. The first view I'll briefly touch on because really hardly anyone believes this view anymore. It's called post-millennialism. There's a mouthful for you. Post meaning after teaches Jesus will return and reign in an actual millennial kingdom after we get it ready for him. This view went out of popularity after the world wars. So why was it popular before the world wars? Well, the age of the enlightenment, everything was getting better. Science was answering all these questions that man has had. It's fixing all of our problems. We started this new uh, nation and uh, the gospel was spreading America was becoming this 
great Christian nation. The British Empire was spreading the gospel to all the heathen nations. The uh, missions movement was really taking off. There was this great optimism that we are going to Christianize the world and then Jesus will come and reign over all of it. And then we had the 20th century, the most brutal, bloodiest century in human history. The the carnage and evil is almost hard to believe when you read history books. Because we live in a time of relative peace and prosperity, it's almost impossible to fathom how many people were slaughtered or starved during the 20th century. So postmillennialism went right out the window. It had some good adherents, though, in its day. Jonathan Edwards was a postmillennialist, and we would regard him as the greatest theologian America has produced. So you see how sometimes your outlook on life shapes your interpretation of the Bible. If it happened to Jonathan Edwards, it can happen to all of us. The next major view is called amillennialism. As everyone squints to try to read the small font. Amillennialism, you put A in front of a word, it means no. No millennial kingdom. This teaches there's no literal millennial kingdom. That the church has replaced Israel. Israel forfeited all of the promises God made to it. They breached the covenant. And so God has moved all of those promises to the church. And that we're currently in the millennial kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom. The church age. Which is a blend of the spiritual and the physical It's not actually a thousand years because it's been way more than a thousand years already. This view was theorized by Augustine in 400 AD and then popularized by the Roman Catholic Church. And you see that there's a lot of elements of Israel in Catholicism. There's an altar, there's a priest, there's sacrifice. You get into the kingdom instead of by circumcision through baby baptism. You're in the kingdom community. And the kingdom is spreading as the church spreads. A lot of the mainline Protestant denominations are all millennial. Even though the Reformation in the 1500s came and brought the church back to the scriptures, back to the correct view of salvation, they pretty much stuck with amillennialism. That is why most of the mainline denominations, you still have infant baptism because that's how you, you get initiated into the kingdom. Yes, they teach that to get into the final kingdom, you must receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The problem with the amillennial view, as I said earlier, is that it tends to focus so much on the kingdom now that you forget to evangelize people. You're just in. And that was my experience growing up in the Lutheran church. You're just in. You're in the kingdom. This is the kingdom. No decision for Christ needed to be made. The third view, which happens 
to be the current dominant view in the Southern Baptist Convention. And in case you didn't know it, this was this is, I said was, this is, it's like a Freudian slip there or something. This is a Southern Baptist church. We've had people who've been members here for a long time and said, I didn't know this was a Southern Baptist church. Maybe it's like the flavor isn't what you're used to, the Southern Baptist Church. But the Southern Baptist Convention is huge and very diverse, but we all agree on the same doctrines, which you can read in the Baptist Faith and Message. You can read our Constitution and Bylaws. And you will find that there is no official teaching on whether we're post-mill, ah-mill, or pre-mill. And that tells you it's a secondary doctrine that isn't one that is necessary for being in or out of the convention. Good and godly men and women see eye to eye on Jesus returning. They see eye to eye on the fact that the kingdom is spiritual and physical, but they disagree over this thousand-year kingdom that's coming. Premillennialism teaches that Jesus will return before the millennial kingdom is set up, pre-millennial. The millennial kingdom will include fulfilling all the promises he has made to the church and to Israel, which we see as two different programs. He still has his program for Israel and promises he's made to Israel. He has a program for the church. The church has been grafted in. It hasn't replaced Israel. Historic premillennialism was the dominant view of the early church fathers before Augustine. John wrote Revelation. John had a disciple named Papias. He, he, he taught him. He taught Polycarp and Irenaeus. And they taught and so on and so on. Those are the, the early church fathers. They were all premillennial. It wasn't until Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire and Christianity was spreading everywhere that Augustine said, hey, you know what makes sense? As long as it's spreading everywhere, we'll just make this the kingdom. This is the kingdom. It looked like everything was going to be Christianized. And the state and the church got all kind of tangled together as one entity. Jesus is reigning through the state church, and that's how the kingdom will get set up. A lot of emphasis on the physical part of the kingdom. Lots of buildings built and schools and, and churches and civilizations. We're, we're building the kingdom now. So, why does your view of the kingdom matter? Why does your view of the kingdom matter? Well, first let me say this. We could look at our sin problem as this. A wrong view of the kingdom. We don't want the king to be king. We want to be king. We want to set up our own kingdom. Wasn't that Adam and Eve's problem in the garden? We want our own kingdom. We're supposed to have dominion as representatives of God, not as replacements of God. 
And so if that's where the fall began, then your view of the kingdom matters immensely. But secondly, if we put too much emphasis on the physical kingdom now, if if we get super entrenched in the amillennial view, we'll tend to downplay evangelism and discipleship. It's all about we need more churches, we need more Christian schools, we need more Christians in government, we need, we need, we need, and next thing you know you're saying, hey, I think they're Christians, they sound like Christians, they act like Christians, they're moral people, they're, they're in the kingdom, and they may not be in the kingdom. But you're so focused on trying to build the kingdom now that you're happy with anyone who appears to be part of the kingdom. Amillennialism traditionally has led to theological liberalism. Look at the mainline denominations and the direction they took. Social gospel. Interpreting the Bible figuratively. That doesn't mean that all who are amillennial are heretics. That's where we start getting into the ugly. And we're not going to go there. You can look and see great premillennials doing ministry side by side with great amillennials. R.C. Sproul was amillennial. John MacArthur's premillennial. And all kinds of different flavors of premillennial and amillennial. If we put too much emphasis on the spiritual kingdom, which premillennials tend to do, you have a tendency to downplay bringing kingdom principles to bear in our world. Now, you kind of abandon the culture. They're all going to hell in a handbasket. It's all going down. It's all going to burn up. Let's just stay in our holy huddle. And so we don't want to go to that extreme either. There's a place for the tenets of amillennialism and premillennialism to coexist. So, then what does the Bible say about these topics? Far more than we can cover. But you've been taught in this church to stick with the system of biblical interpretation that increases your chances of rightly dividing the Word of God. Always start with a literal, grammatical, historical approach to interpreting the Bible, the same way you would read any literature. Don't allegorize the Scripture. If, if a passage is difficult to accept literally, don't assume it's being figurative. Does the Bible have figurative language? Yes. You and I use figurative language every day as well. But we understand when we're being figurative and when we're being literal. We understand when we're using metaphors and similes. Then look at the whole flow of the Bible. We call that biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. Don't stop on one passage and base all of your answers on that passage. You've got to look at the whole flow of the Bible. I loved at the marriage conference that Dr. Tripp had said, you know what the problem with most marriage books is they run straight to the passage in the Bible on marriage. 
and forget that the whole flow of the Bible is telling us about the kingdom of God and how fallen people in the kingdom of God want to set up their own kingdoms. And isn't that the problem with marriage? Two people trying to set up their own little kingdoms. Thirdly, we should do systematic theology then. Now start looking at all the passages that teach about the kingdom. And you put that all together. And then fourthly, let's look at historical theology. What have Christians through the ages said on this topic? Folks, we were not the first to arrive on scene. There's been a lot of men and women following Christ for a long time. It's arrogant for us to not listen to voices from the past. So I think what I'm going to do here is keep you hanging until next week. Keep you hanging until next week. And um, we'll celebrate Lord's Supper next week. It's the last Sunday in March already. Wow, that went fast. And we'll look next week at the flow of biblical theology, what it says about the kingdom, some specific passages. And then we'll look at the pros and cons of amillennialism versus pre-millennialism. But as I said last week, if you're dying to know, we don't have an official position, but most of the leaders of the church adhere to a pre-millennial view that there's an actual kingdom coming a physical kingdom and Israel has a big part to play in that kingdom. But here's what I want to leave you with. The Bible tells us enough about the end to give us what we all really need. Hope. We win. In fact, Christ has already won because Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. And because we know the end, we have encouragement to live today and the motivation to fight apathy and fight despondency and say, I want to be found faithful when the king returns, doing the king's work here on earth. We'll look next week at, more specifically, what kind of work that is supposed to be. But don't wait until next week to get to work. Share the gospel with people and live the gospel. And let God pan it all out at the end. I don't think he'll come back and say, well, no, you weren't supposed to do it in that order. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you preached the gospel. You fulfilled the great commission. You fought the good fight. You finished the race. Uh, Now enter into a much better kingdom than you've ever experienced here on earth. Father, thank you that there is a better kingdom coming. And that there is a king who reigns now. Reign in our hearts, reign in our church, reign in our homes, Jesus. We ask in your name, amen. Amen.